Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is February 28th of 2013, and tonight our guest is Ellen Tuckman of New York University. Uh, she's also chairman of the board of Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center. Um, she's going to be talking about women who inject drugs. Uh, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Ellen Tuckman, is with us right now. Ellen, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing fine, Ken. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, tell us a little bit about, uh, it's a research study you've been doing at Lower East Side Harm Reduction. Tell us, what is this about? Uh, well, this study's been going on for about a year now. It's um, a two-phase study. It's mixed methods, which means that we started with qualitative methods and um, are now moving to quantitative um, the project is about um, injecting drug-using women's practices. Um, it is about their social, behavioral, and contextual injecting practices and looking at their um, at-risk behaviors. Okay. Um, well, when I was working at Access Works in Minneapolis long ago, they used to call themselves Women with a Point. And one thing that they were talking, yeah, that was their original name, and then they decided it was a little too restrictive to the male drug users. Uh, one thing they talked about a lot was that a lot of women would have their partner or their pimp or some other person to inject them, and they would not know how to inject the drugs themselves. And uh, one one point of empowerment that they talked about was teaching teaching women how to do their own injection. Is, does this have any connection with your study? Absolutely, and I'm so glad you started with that because to this day, almost all of the literature um, states that women injectors are all initiated by their male sexual partners um, and that most of them um, are always receiving injections and unable to inject themselves. And um, what we found in this study, in the first part of the study, was that of the 26 women that we interviewed, um, probably less than half um, were actually um, initiated by male partners, that most of the women in our study so far were really introduced um, to injecting their first injection by their female friends in their social network. So they were friends of the women or family members of the women who um, were also female and introduced them to their first injection. So what we found so far is that things might be changing a little bit. Now, some of this might be uh, related to the fact that we did recruit a lot of women from the harm reduction uh, center, and um, that may have something to do with it, but these are women who have been injecting for quite a while, and a long time ago, they were initiated into injecting by their female friends. So I'm really happy that you started with that, because we'd like to undo that possible myth. So it's not all, but still a sizable quantity are introduced by, by males. 
Uh, well, 60%, I'm looking at the numbers right now, 60% of our women were introduced by females, which means mm-hmm. less than mm-hmm. half. So, you know, 40% of them were introduced by male sexual partners or male friends or not pimps right now in this study we hadn't found, but we did find that women were initiated into in, uh, injecting also by what we call hitters or professional doctors, so men in shooting galleries who are paid to actually inject someone. And that was a um, number of women who were initiated by male partners or male hitters. So for women that were, well, introduced by, regardless of uh, women or men, um Mm-hmm. Do, do they soon learn? I mean, do they soon take up the injecting themselves, or are they injected by someone else? This is a question I was interested in. Um, could you say that again? Do, you, do well, they women... do they need to rely on someone else to inject them uh, long term? Uh, yes, yeah, some women in the study um, really are still, after you know, ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty years of injecting, are still relying on someone else. But that was not the majority of women in this study. So, um, a lot of the women who were originally introduced to injecting by a male have learned to self-inject, and obviously, self-injecting is, um, you know, really. Uh, less of a risk for women in terms of HIV, hepatitis C. Um, so there there are a lot of women who started uh, by being injected by someone else and now have moved into self-injecting. So what percentage do you think, uh, in, your, in, uh, the, in the sample you looked at, what percentage were still reliant on someone else to inject them? Um, I would say a little bit less than half. I mean, it's a small qualitative sample. We only had 26 women. Um, And, you know, in the second part, in our um, quantitative part, we're administering a survey uh, to close to 200 women, and that will give us a better number. Um, But in the qualitative, um, less than half of the women were still being injected by someone else. And so were they being injected by male partners or female partners, or who were they being injected by? Um, It varied. Some were being injected, as I said a few minutes ago, by their male sexual partners. Some were being injected by female friends who were already injectors. Um, And some were being, um, you know, going into um, shooting galleries and paying someone to inject them. And that behavior is probably the most risky because... Um, from women's narratives, we can hear that they go in, um, they go into an abandoned building, an abandoned room in, a, in an abandoned building, and are going in and having um, someone, you know, paying someone $5 to take a used syringe out of a coffee can that they're just sitting in water and re-injecting them for, you know, with their own drugs that they've brought in. So they're putting themselves at much more risk in any in all three categories, whether it's a professional hitter, whether it's uh, a female, another female injecting you, or a male. You're putting yourself at much more risk for infectious disease, um, and so that was a little bit less than um, half of the sample. So, is the risk if your partner injects you is that because you don't know if the needle is clean or not? 
Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the women told us that, uh, of the women who were being injected by their sexual partners, um, they told us a few different things. Um, some of the women said that they were what's called second on the needle. So the uh, partner and the woman uh, would go out, cop their drugs, go back to their place or somewhere to inject, and the, and both of them would probably be in withdrawal at this point um, and needing that heroin. Uh, or cocaine, and um, the man would inject first and then take his used needle and inject his partner. Now, some of these couples were not HIV positive. Some of them were, um, you know, a lot of them had hep C and said that they uh, contracted hep C from their partners from sharing the syringes, or even not just the syringes, but the work. So they may be sharing... Um, you know, the partner may be using just the needle to uh, pull up into the syringe the drugs that they've cooked, and um, they might be sharing the cotton balls to wipe the uh, area that they're going to inject in. All of these things put women at much more risk than men. So sharing sharing any equipment, does that put you at risk at both HIV and, and hep C, sharing cookers? Yes. and yep. Because there's both. blood on it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know, uh, uh, I'm sure there must be some males that are injected by uh, other people instead of injecting themselves. Do you know any numbers on that? Or do you, have you heard anything about that? Um, it's still pretty high. Men definitely are injected by others as well. Not as much as women. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. Um, all of my research in the past 10 years has been with women, so I'm not up to date right now on um, that number with men. But, you know, it's still men still do get injected by others as well. And that could be a professional hitter or a, or a partner. Oh, sure, sure. Anyone. Okay, tell me a little bit more about uh, the at-risk behaviors that uh, women drug injectors have. Well, they have the same same risk behaviors that um, anyone does. Um, you know, they as we said, it's if you're injected by someone else, um, if you share equipment, if you share syringes, um, you know, sexual behavior, obviously. So if you're not um, using condoms and practicing safer sex, um, if you're engaging in sex work, all of these things are uh, risky behaviors. Okay, and what are some of the uh, preliminary results that you've gotten from your uh, your qualitative study? Uh huh. In terms of the risky behavior, yes. Um, well, right now, what we've what we've analyzed so far is just the injecting risk. So I can speak to the injecting risk. And um, what we did was we separated the women who were self-injecting themselves. Um, in other words, they were. Um, getting their own needles most of the time, um, but definitely injecting themselves all of the time. And we compared them to the women who were being injected by somebody else. And what we found so far is that the women who are um, self-injectors are actually making decisions about being self-injectors and seeing um, and really deciding that they know that that's going to really protect them um, from some of the risks that they would be exposed to if they were actually um, being injected, excuse me, by someone else. Um, and they really describe 
um, situations where they went to learn how to inject themselves uh, because they had been injected by someone else and they realized that they were participating and putting themselves at risk by having somebody else inject them. Um, they were also describing um, being, you know, a, having a sense of being controlled by somebody else. So um, for someone who is being injected by someone else and is unable to inject themselves, they've got to wait for someone to be available to inject them. And so they may be in withdrawal and quite sick and very uncomfortable, and they have to go out and find someone to inject them, or they might have to pay someone to inject them. So they put themselves in very dangerous situations if they're being injected by someone else, as opposed to the women who are self-injecting who say, you know, I take care of it myself, I get clean needles, I use sterile needles, I always have my own needles around, I can inject when I want, I can inject in what part of the body I want to inject, I can inject at the moment that I want to, I don't have to rely on anyone, I don't have to be second on the needle. So they're making very good decisions about really taking precautions and not engaging in a lot of injecting risk as opposed to the women who are still being, um, you know, injected by somebody else. And, you know, there are a lot of barriers for women uh, to become self-injectors, and I think that's an important thing for us to share with the public as well. Um, a lot of women biologically, I mean, and we know this, um, have, because of the higher fat, distribution in our bodies and smaller veins, it makes it more difficult for a woman to find a vein than a man who can, uh, you know, who can find a vein easily on his arms. Um, so women, um, I mean, the literature will tell you that women are unable to, even if they know how, they sometimes can't even find their own veins um, because they may be too small and too hidden under the fat in our bodies. Um, other people, other women said that they were just too scared. They have uh, needle phobia. They just they they can be injected by someone else, but they cannot inject um, themselves. Um, so that was a big thing. Um, some of the women who had their partners or other men or women injecting them said that their hands were much steadier, uh, that they were much slower. The the person who was injecting them. Um, other women. Um, would say that it was, um, you know, horrible to be injected by someone else because if your partner is high and injecting you, um, you know, they can go through the vein, they can cause an abscess, um, you know, they they um, get bodily injury sometimes from being injected by someone else. Um, um, other women um, talked about um, how going into a shooting gallery was really um, a very frightening situation, and they would have to sometimes exchange sex um, in order for someone to inject them. So the risks that they were um, incurring um, bring us to something that, that I think is really important, that it really behooves us to try and teach women um, to inject themselves and get rid of um, or prevent some of this risk that they're already um, incurring by being a woman who has to be injected by someone else all the time. Uh, yeah, it would be great if we had safe injection rooms where we could have professional doctors yes. or nurses. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> take care of I was this. hoping you'd say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you know, I think I just thought of something else to, to follow up on the SIFIs and, you know, that, that are available in Canada and other places, um, these safe injecting rooms. Um, you know, I think that uh, one of the things that I was very surprised by in the study uh, when we were talking to women, um, one of the big things that came up was this whole transition from sniffing heroin or cocaine to injecting. And we know that injecting is a big public health risk because um, that hasn't been paid uh, a lot of attention to for women. Um, and one of the things that we found was that most of the women in the study, almost all of them, moved from snorting cocaine or heroin to injecting for economic reasons, which I was just stunned by um, because it's not in the literature. Um, what we know in the literature about women who transition and even men who transition, it's usually for the pleasurable high. It's usually, um, you know, for, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought, um, for, you know, other reasons that we would think um, and certainly not um, for economic reasons. Um, so, you know, we, we know that uh, a lot of people transition because of their histories um, of sexual abuse. We know that women who use drugs, um, close to 60% of them have childhood um, sexual abuse, childhood um, physical abuse, incest. Um, a number of women in the study also um, experienced that and reported that and, and had um, fathers who um, actually raped them at a very early age but, got them, but injected them with heroin first to keep them calm and knock them out a little bit at very young ages. And so that matched the literature. That was not a surprise. But the fact that women were told by their female friends in their social network that they should move, they should start injecting and stop sniffing because they can save a lot of money if they do that. That's what they were told by female friends in their network. And um, they said that they would get a quicker high, which is true. Mm -hmm. But it backfired on most of the women because what happened was that they were moved from this snorting heroin to injecting and then built up the same tolerance that they did with the, um, you know, intranasal route of administration and then ended up spending just as much or more money on injecting. Mm -hmm. So... For that, um, you know, my thoughts are that we should have this uh, a peer-driven strategy uh, where women injectors dispel this myth for women, young women who are who are sniffing heroin and not injecting yet, because they're going to get that message eventually. Stop sniffing and move to injecting. And who better to tell them than women injectors who have gone through the exact same thing? And now can tell you know younger girls that that's it's not true. Don't believe it if someone tells you because look at me. You know that kind of a strategy. Um, so SIPPIES and um, peer-driven strategies, I think, are going to be great ways to move in the future in harm reduction. Now that's interesting. That you just brought up a whole host of points to talk about. <laughs> Sorry. I, oh, that's not that's not that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Um, and one is about route of ingestion and you know the rate of ingestion. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of studies that show you know the more rapidly that you get the uh, 
the drug to rise in your brain, the more addictive it is. Uh, of course, the bigger mm-hmm. the high. So, right. of course, smoking and injecting are much uh, more, you know, they get you high a lot quicker than snorting. Right, right. Absolutely. But, the, but then the, that's much more addictive and uh, gets you hooked much more and you start using much bigger quantities. Absolutely, and that's what happened to these women. And, you know, I found the same thing with myself with tobacco, you know, when I was uh, going from being a pipe smoker, a cigar smoker, to being a cigarette smoker and, you know, sucking uh-huh. it all in my lungs, you know, then right. much more addicted. And, you know, I finally quit cigarettes and now I have a cigar now and then, but, you know, I don't get tempted to get addicted to that because the rate of ingestion is so slow. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, well, the other thing I'm going to mention, because it's on my mind now, because you brought it up, um, was when the veterans came back from Vietnam and we had such a large number of people that were addicted to heroin. And what mm-hmm. I was reading was they were all smoking it. And uh, when they got back, one of the things they found out, it was very expensive in the United States compared to Vietnam, where it was very, very cheap. Oh, yeah. And there's no way they could afford to smoke it. And, you know, the majority of them, like seven out of eight, you know, they quit. And I think Mm -hmm. one reason might have been they didn't want to shoot. Of course, it was expensive. And then there was not the stress involved of being in a war, of course. Right, right. That I'm not familiar with. I mean, I know about it, but I don't know. I don't think I can comment on it. <laughs> well, it was definitely another case of the the economic factor. Uh, you know, being involved in switching mm-hmm. you from your route of ingestion of you know smoking, which is very wa- wasteful way to right. get heroin right. in your system. It's very expensive to smoke compared to shoot. You know, mm-hmm. and I think it might have motivated a lot a lot of them to stop. Well, but there were so many factors there that were going on, you know, in addition. Right, right, right. Absolutely. So where are you in the study? Have you started the quantitative portion yet? Yes. Um, We are almost finished analyzing most of the qualitative data. Um, We used it to develop a survey. um, And um, in the survey, what we're doing is taking everything that we found in the qualitative section and really um, trying to expand it, and obviously to expand it within a larger number. Um, and so the survey that we developed is um, really looking at um, the uh, knowledge of injecting practices, the risks of injecting practices. Um, we're looking at a, a power scale between uh, partners um, to see, because a, a lot of the women who were assisted with their injecting were telling us about this power differential, um, which is pretty through uh, pretty well documented in the literature already. And so, um, where now we've, I think we've collected, um, I think we administered about 70 surveys already, and we're starting to look at the preliminary findings in that, and um, we should be finished probably by the end of the summer, collecting the rest of the data. Okay, it sounds sounds very fascinating. Um, what, what other differences have you found? Um, you know, our audience is completely naive on the topic. What are some of the differences between the men injectors and women injectors that you haven't talked about yet? Um, Well, I'm only going to compare the women in this study to uh, the literature that we know about the gender differences between men and women. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest thing we found was that women transitioned from the non-injecting drug use to the injecting, um, as I said, for economic reasons. Um, and so I think that was a, one of the biggest things. Um, I haven't seen that in the literature for men as well, um, except in maybe one or two studies, so I wouldn't say that it's a big finding. Um, so I think that that's kind of different, that, um, you know, women are really moving for economic reasons and men maybe, but I'm still not convinced of that yet. Um, but the real difference, I think, is that um, the real difference between the men and women injectors, um, according to what we found, is that uh, women are not introduced by male sexual partners to the first injection, um, and when men are initiated, it's almost never by a sexual partner. It's always by a male friend, usually, um, and a male friend in their social network who's obviously also an injector or, or who already is an injector. So that's um, a big gender difference. Um, and the other gender difference is also that there are many less assisted male injectors, that more men are able to inject themselves um, than women, and that's pretty um, pretty common, um, or pretty well known. So I think that um, you know, in this study again, uh, a lot of women are self injectors, but there are still you know 40% of the women are still, or I'm sorry, almost half of the women um, were uh, assisted injectors. So here it's a little bit different, and that that could be um, you know because of the whole um, harm reduction movement, because a lot of these women are at the syringe exchange. So they may have learned how to inject themselves um, at the harm reduction center. Mm-hmm. So these these numbers might not be representative of uh, female injectors in the in the larger populace at all. Oh, absolutely not, because um, you can't take a quali- a qualitative study can never generalize. I mean, they're very small samples. Um, what we got was um, in qualitative was. Um, these women's uh, voices or in their own words or their perspectives of what we were talking about with them. Um, in the survey, uh, we'll be able to document it to see if it can be generalizable or if it can be uh, new findings that have to be explored. Um, there are a couple of studies that have found that, um, you know, that younger women are being initiated by females, by friends, by female friends as opposed to male sexual partners. There's a lot of research going on now with very young injectors. Um, it's a big, uh, a big situation that we have to pay a lot of attention to. So I think we're going to be finding um, some new things coming out of this, you know, out of the studies uh, looking at the younger ones. Well, when you do that quantitative part, um, mm-hmm. I know you. I know you're still going to be uh, recruiting subjects from the needle exchanges. Um, are you going to be able to recruit subjects from other sources too to get uh, you know yeah. the picture? Oh, you, okay. What what are the yeah, other sources? Fact, mm-hmm. Well, what we did in the qualitative is we did what's called snow, a snowballing technique, and snowballing is when I recruited a woman from the harm reduction center. And I said, do you have female friends who inject who were not in the harm reduction center? And they said, yes. And I said, would they be interested in participating? And they said, yes. And I said, could you bring them in? And they would. So not every woman, even in the qualitative, 
is from the harm reduction center or, um, you know, using the syringe exchange. And we're doing the same exact thing with, um, you know, the study, uh, the quantitative study. So women, uh, one woman, in fact, uh, last week brought me five women who she knew who had never even been in the harm reduction center. And one of the things that I've been uh, trying to do with both uh, phases of the study is to really engage other women who were not in harm reduction yet uh, to come in in this way. So they come in, and by the end of the survey, we're just sitting and talking, and we're talking about the harm reduction center and the services that they offer. And a woman says, oh, I didn't know about this place. My friend didn't tell me. And I said, oh, would you like to get intake? And she said, yes. And that's something that um, I've been working with um, the executive director that um, if I can engage women in through research, can we get them intake quickly so that we can engage them in the center? And, of course, she was delighted about that. So, um, yeah, we are getting women from other places right off the street. Oh, that might be a, that might be a strategy that the center needs to adopt to actually engage more people in uh, accessing services there. Yeah. Well, certainly women, because I think um, at the harm reduction center, I think we have less than 30% of the participants uh, enrolled are female. And that's traditional across almost all of substance abuse treatment, um, that it's never more than 20 to 40%, and really not 40%. I would say probably closer to 30%. It's very difficult to engage women um, into substance abuse treatment. Okay. Um, well, I want to ask a couple more questions. One, what did you learn from the women that transitioned from being injected by someone else to injecting themselves? Uh, how did they do it? What, what uh, was involved with that? Um, well, one of the women that we spoke to um, said that she went to a place that was called the door. I don't know if you've heard it heard about it in New York City. It's a it's an empowerment center for men and women, young people mostly. And um she said that she went there for uh mental health purposes and that she was um struggling with her injecting and her relationship with her boyfriend and the person that she was working with told her that he knew of a place that would um help her learn how to inject herself and she didn't remember the name of the place, but she told me that's where she went, and she learned how, and uh, that was what she did. Other women said that they just kept practicing on themselves, that their friends would help them, um, and that they just spent a lot of time learning how to do it and um, felt so much better once they, uh, you know, were able to inject themselves. Were there differences you found between the women that learned to inject themselves and the ones that didn't? In terms of what? Um, in in terms of, oh, motivation, mindset, of uh, anything that stood out to you? Um, not really because, um, you know, we looked at the, now, again, it's a small sample because this was in the qualitative. Mm -hmm. We looked at the difference in the demographics. There wasn't anything. So it wasn't younger women versus older women. It wasn't the length of time that uh, they were injecting. Um, it seemed to be just um, that certain women um, did not have the fear of needles, Um uh, other women were not in. I mean, there were a number of women, actually, I just realized, 
that were not in uh, relationships at the time, and they said that they just didn't want to put themselves at risk and go into a shooting gallery or anywhere else um, that would be dangerous or risky, and that they just had to sit down in their bathroom and learn how to do it, Um, that they were not going to go out of their house and have a stranger um, or someone on the street or or put themselves in a situation where they had to exchange sex for... um, you know, getting uh, someone to inject them. And so they just figured out how to do it. So I think that there were some people who were not in a relationship. There was actually uh, two women in our study who were widows whose husbands had died, and the husbands had been injecting them always, uh, you know, throughout their relationship. And when the husbands died, both women had to learn how to inject themselves. So there really wasn't any way that we could figure out, well, what is the difference? We saw some of the circumstances. So it was, you know, some women were just uh, much more motivated. Um, Some women were just um, not wanting to put themselves at risk or in a dangerous situation. Other women were were forced into it when their partners died, and they decided to just, you know, learn how to inject so they could do it themselves. And about how many women were self-injectors from the outset, or the, like the second time? or um, Very few women um, were self-injectors uh, from the first time. I think only two women of the 26 actually injected the first time and then, um, you know, were always self-injectors. There were another a, a group of women, I would say, um, who had been injecting um, for short periods of time, and then moved to self-injecting, where they just, you know, figured it out and learned how to do it, and did it. And then there were other women who are self-injectors, even they identify as self-injectors, but when they go in and out of relationships, uh, and the relationship is with an injector, that they tend to uh, move back and forth. That there are times where they will uh, allow, as they say. Uh, allow their their male sexual partner to inject them. Um, And some of the women even described it, um, both uh, women who were self-injectors and assisted injectors, that when they were in a relationship with an injector, there was something very sexual about being injected by a male. They thought it was a, a penetration, obviously, and that the high was sort of like an orgasm. So there are uh, there were a couple of women in our study who really moved back and forth uh, between self-injecting and assisted injecting when they were in a uh, sexual relationship with an injector, which I found fascinating. <laughs> that's that's very interesting. I would uh-huh. never thought of that. Um, well, is there anything else that you would like to uh, leave us with on this topic? Um, just, I think, the, um, you know, the whole purpose of doing research in my, in my area um, is always to figure out a way to improve services for um, drug-using women. And clearly in this one, um, what I'm hoping is that um, we're able to improve the services for these women in one way or another, and one of which I said was a gender-sensitive, peer-driven strategy to dispel the myths. Um, for women who have not yet transitioned to injecting. Um, also, for the assisted injectors, I think it's really important for us to figure out an intervention that would help us build personal 
capability for women to self-inject who, um, you know, have already transitioned to injecting. Okay. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Ellen Tuckman. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Okay, everyone, come back next week. Uh, we're going to have the show on Friday next week. Our guest will be Joe Cohen, who is a harm reduction psychotherapist, and we'll look forward to see you all then. So, everyone, good night. Bye.